Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Pipettes in Politics, the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology's Science Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Korb, the Public Affairs Director for ASBMB, and as always, I am joined by Andre Porter. Hey, how you doing? And Daniel Pham. Hey, everyone. I want to thank you um, for joining our last episode in which we talked about the tax policy issue the tax reform bill that was going through the House of Representatives at the time. We have a little bit of an update on that that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about some quick hit topics, things like uh, funding the government into the next fiscal year, things like budgetary policy, and maybe uh, also the retirement of an important member of the House of Representatives that is upcoming. So um, there are lots of issues that we're going to get to. And also, I'm excited to mention that we'll have a guest in the second segment, and that is Matt Hurahan who is the Research and Development Budget Director for AAAS, and he's going to be talking to us about the impact of raising fiscal spending caps on science funding um, for the next year. So that's what we've got in store for you today. So the first thing we want to do is give an update on tax policy and tax reform. Last week, we talked about the impact of the House of Representatives tax reform bill on graduate students, the impact that the, uh, let's call it the so-called grad student tax would have on graduate students in the scientific enterprise all across the country. Um, The Senate currently is debating. It is uh, 1 o'clock on Friday, December 1st, and we expect passage from all the news that we're reading. So we're going to assume that there's passage of the Senate reform tax reform bill. It's got some differences in it from the House bill, uh, and those differences are pretty significant, particularly with this graduate student tax. Uh, Andre What's the difference between what the Senate is about to pass, as we understand it, and what the House has passed? So the bill that the Senate has does not include the tuition waiver deduction removal that the House bill proposed. Um, The graduate student school employee tax assistance is the same as current law, Uh, so students will not be taxed on their tuition waivers. Uh, The student interest deduction is also the same as current law. And um, the student tax credits are the same as current law. The tax on interest to student loans that the House removed is placed back in in the Senate uh, tax bill. So they're faring a lot better than they did in the House bill. And uh, let's be fair. So uh, ASBMB opposed the House bill, H.R. 1. Um, We didn't formally put out a statement regarding the Senate bill. However, much of the same assumptions from the previous bill still exist today. This bill doesn't have that student grad tax. It does still, depending on the analysis that you read, it does still have a trillion dollars in deficit that's added, correct? Right, yes. so according to the uh, the um, budget office. The Joint Committee on Taxation, I think. Right, and the CBO, it's $1.4, $1.5 trillion in uh, increased deficit over 10 years. Right, and, and so even one of the things that they had been discussing in the Senate was the sort of triggers that are necessary maybe triggers in cuts to spending um, that might help to reduce the deficit. The bottom line is the bill still has, without even without the graduate student tax issue, there are still uh, micro, macro fiscal policy issues that this bill doesn't address or problems that it'll cost down the line. It's something that we're still watching. It's something that we're opposing. Um, the next step is this is going to go to conference, right? And so the next step is going to be uh, members of the Senate from both parties, members from the House from both parties are going to need to sit down and hammer out the differences between the House bill and the Senate bill. Daniel, what has, what have you seen 
the graduate student community doing, particularly in uh, opposition to the grad tax issue? Yeah, so it's been really great to see um, a lot of movement and momentum uh, within universities all throughout the U.S. Um, about 40 universities pro um, joined in to protest the tax on tuition waivers uh, just recently, and it was really cool to see how many people became really energized and um, were able to mobilize in such short notice. Moving forward, I think we need to make sure that the message goes beyond this um, tuition waiver because that may or may not be an issue anymore depending on the conference because again we know that the senate tax bill does not include the, the tuition waiver and people in the house have also mentioned that when they go to conference this um, provision will not be something that they're going to push anyway so you know keep up the good work um, it's great to see so many people um, out and um, calling their representatives we just need to make sure our messaging is accurate and um, successful. Yeah, and so uh, just to kind of hammer the point that you made home, uh, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, which is where tax policy stems from, uh, is Congressman Kevin Brady. And Kevin Brady on the floor of the House of Representatives had um, a discussion with other Republican members who were concerned about the impact that the grad student tax would have on their constituency. They represented, they had universities in their district. And uh, Mr. Brady, during that discussion, had mentioned um, a recognition and an understanding of the issue that was going to cause, and I believe that the quote that he had said was, they're looking forward to going to conference where they can uh, design a fix to this problem. So what that means is unclear. Um, does that mean that the, the, wa the, the waiver repeal will go away completely in conference? I'm not sure. But it's an indication that the messaging, as you mentioned, Daniel, it's being heard. People are recognizing it. We have seen mainstream media, um, you know, not just the, you know, the science and natures, but the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, you know, places where normal people, not scientists, get their news from have been talking about this issue as well. So we're going to continue to watch it. Uh, listen to us. Go to our blog, policy.asbmb.org, where we'll be updating things. Follow us on Twitter. We'll be keeping a lot of information there. Um, we're going to move on to another issue that's facing us. We are uh, T-minus three or four days, maybe, from government shutdown. Um, but currently, we are operating under a continuing resolution, which expires December 8th. 8th. Okay, so my math was off. We're seven days away from a government shutdown. Um, does anyone here at the table have an update on where we are? Are we going to have another continuing resolution? Do we have any updates there? So... From everything that I've heard, we, we're looking at a potential extended CR until January, maybe late December. Um, so we might not hit that cliff on next Friday, the, December 8th, but it, it it's just kicking the ball down the, the road maybe a month or so. So, Yeah, it seems like most of the work is done. You know, mo Again, even before we got to this point, a lot of the appropriations bills had been written and were pretty well ready to go. Um, it's just a matter of getting over some of these policy hurdles. I, I think it's a matter of getting this tax bill right. um, out of the way so we can clear the decks. Um, I don't see, does anyone can correct me here, anyone see an appetite in Congress for a government shutdown? No, no. I don't think so. I, I think there's there's no benefit to any party to have a I mean, government shutdown at this point. Right. And if you think about the... Um, the Republican Party has several factions in the House of Representatives. There's um, a group that's called the Tuesday Group, and that's really mo kind of moderate Republicans. 
and there is the Freedom Caucus, which is the more conservative, um, the more bus fiscal, budget hawk type uh, wing of the Republican Party. The leaders of both of those groups have come out and said that they're working together in order to get an agreement for a continuing resolution. So it seems like we're moving towards a CR, um, maybe avoiding, hopefully knock on wood, avoiding a government shutdown um, and continuing things forward. Another just news topic that we had seen was being talked about, um, chair of the House Science and Technology Committee, um, Congressman- Lamar Smith. Lamar Smith, Congressman Lamar Smith is retiring uh, at the end of this term. He has been the chair of House SciTech for uh, this is his second term, I believe, his first term? This is, this is halfway through his third term. Wow, okay, so he's halfway through his third term. So he's resigning and stepping down, which will leave an opening um, for leadership in the House Science and Technology Committee. Anyone have anything they want to talk about with regards to Mr. Smith's role as chair in that committee? I do want to put a quick note that he is retiring at the end of his term, as, so he would have been ousted anyway because he only, had, he only can serve six years as a chair of the committee so he's finishing out his sixth year so his he he was going to be there was going to be a new chair of the committee anyway but he is retiring right. from congress right. entirely right. um so um one of the things that i've noticed during his tenure um, i've been doing science policy for the better part of 12 years now um there was a time when uh members of congress viewed the House Science and Technology Committee as one of the last bastions of bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. um, Chairman Bart Gordon from Tennessee, a Democrat. Um, Congressman Ralph Hall from Texas, a Republican. These were guys that worked really well together when they, you know, part the party uh, power was kind of flipping back and forth. Um, there was a lot of good work that was coming out of that. I will say that uh, I believe Mr. Smith's role as the chair, well, people will look back at it as more of a controversial time um, during uh, Mr. Smith's leadership. Um, a lot of attention went to NASA and space exploration, which in science is a good thing. Um, he was very critical of the National Science Foundation, and there were several, shall we say, skirmishes between the committee leadership and the leadership of the National Science Foundation uh, about peer review. Mm -hmm. um, I remember yeah. distinctly a bill that was kind of a an affront to the peer review process that was released in draft form and kind of the community crushed it as quickly as it possibly could. So um, I think that history will look back on Mr. Smith's role as the chair of the committee um, as some good and some fraught. bad. Yeah, fraught, fraught I think is a, <laughs> is a good term for it. So um, we, uh, we'll look forward to seeing who, uh, uh, this what, what party is going to be leading. Uh, so we'll know what party uh, the leader of this committee will come from, um, but also who the new the next chair of this committee will be. And again, this chair, this committee has uh, congressional jurisdiction over uh, NASA, the National Science Foundation, kind of a lot of the science-related agencies that are not uh, the NIH, right. which uh, the oversight for the NIH comes from the Energy and Commerce Committee, the Health Subcommittee over there. So, uh, well, good. Oh, God, Daniel. I just say it's it's kind of funny. Um, people had thought that um, when Lamar Smith started uh, his chairmanship that it would continue the bipartisan uh, feeling because he had chaired the Judiciary Committee before, and, which was yeah. really successful. And he pushed forward that patent bill that was bipartisan, a bipartisan effort, and everybody thought, hey, this might be a good guy to go to the Science Committee, but he turned out to be, for better or worse, not so much suited for it. And 
a lot of the things that he pushed for, he, he's been a champion for STEM education. Um, it's really the research community that has been hit. Mm-hmm. He's put through, he's sponsored and pushed forward a lot of bills that uh, looked out for veterans in STEM and STEM education for all and diversity and inclusion. I think, and I don't want to channel Lamar Smith, but I think a lot of his concerns dealt with, and he, he tried to push those type of amendments all the time where it was uh, research for the national interest, right? And what does that mean? He defined it as something that was very critical of research and very, like, I think there's, there were reports of him sending staff members to NSF to go through the papers and read people's abstracts. And so I think he may have been misguided, and he, he had good ideas. They were very controversial. They were very conservative. They were very, um, they weren't helping the research community, but when it came to STEM education, he was a champion for it. And prior to him being the chair, he was a champion for the patent law. Yeah. And so I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll you know, we'll thank you, Mr. Smith, for your service to your country. <laughs> um, and we'll look forward to uh, a new relationship and new leadership in that committee. Um, I want to thank you all for listening. This is Pipe Bets and Politics. Uh, and we'll be taking a break now. And on the other side of the break, we'll be joined by Matt Herhan, where we'll be talking budget caps and uh, federal spending in science. So stick with us and we will be right back. Like this, but want more? Why not visit the ASBMB policy blog where you'll see news and analysis on all things Washington. Visit www.policy.asbmb.org. Welcome back. This is Ben Korb, and you're listening to Pipettes and Politics. I'm joined now by Matt Herhan, who is the research... Um, Matt, what's your title? <laughs> Director of the R&D Budget Program for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And Matt is uh, really an expert in the city when it comes to uh, budget, budgetary impacts on research and development. Um, this guy knows it all, and his website has everything he knows, which is a really impressive thing. Matt, can you tell the people your uh, Twitter handle? Yeah, I'm just at Matt Horahan. You want to spell that? Yeah, it's uh, Matt with two T's and then H-O-U-R-I-H-A-N. And the website for AAAS's R&D budget analysis. Just AAAS.org slash RD. Great. It's a really fantastic website, interactive tools for being able to create charts and look at things historically. Um, it's a great go-to thing. I know we we in our office use it often. So uh, thank you for doing that, doing sure. the work you do there. Sure, thanks for having me. Um, so the idea today was to talk about there is the outline of what could be a budget deal. Um, raising caps kind of equally, not exactly equally. Um, you actually had a little bit of a tweet storm about it when it first came <laughs> out, which grabbed my attention. And so I was wondering maybe we could have a little conversation, talk about big picture what that deal is and sure. then maybe specifically how it might impact some of the people that are listening to this sure sure so if there's a deal if there's a deal that's yeah. the big Which, yeah so, so go ahead tell yeah. us about so, kind of the framework okay so 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 the it's kind of the, the the background is that congress you know many years ago back in 2011 they capped discretionary spending when we say discretionary spending we mean the about one-third of the federal budget or so that, that congress actually allocates every year through the appropriations process and it's where just about all science spending 
uh, is, is contained. So the NIH budget, the NSF budget, the NASA budget, all of it is in the discretionary budget. Uh, now, in the, the upcoming, actually, well, the current fiscal year, the year that we're in, um, those discretionary spending caps are slated to decline by about a half a percentage point, so a small decline uh, from 2017 to 2018. Um, a lot of people in Congress are, are not happy with this current state of affairs. You've got defense hawks who want to see more defense spending. Uh, you've got Democrats who want to see uh, increases in both defense and non-defense spending. Uh, and so they've been talking for a while now uh, about how to, uh, to get together and come up with a deal to raise the spending caps. Now, the, the, deal, the potential deal uh, is uh, it, it was reported, uh, I guess, what, a couple of weeks ago now, um, that they had uh, leaders of the, the Democrats uh, and the Republicans in Congress had discussed uh, a deal that would raise defense spending uh, by about 54 billion in 2018, and non-defense spending by about 37 billion in 2018. So uh, you know, a bigger increase for defense than non-defense. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's 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 a. I mean, it's any time we can get a we can get a, an increase in the spending caps. Um, it's, it's a good thing um, because that ultimately benefits science and technology. Um, however, Democrats have rejected that deal so far because they want to see even dollar-for-dollar dollar increases for defense and non-defense. Um, while the deal, you know, again, it's, it would be slightly uh, slightly bigger increase for, uh, for defense spending. And just to, historically, you know, the, so the Budget Control Act that instituted all of this in 2011, 2011. Um, every time that there's we've basically never really followed the caps. Right. Every year we've kind of busted through the caps. Right. And right. historically every deal that's come out um, has been uh, balanced. There's been parity. It's been right. the same amount of increase for defense right. and non-defense. Is that true? Right, right. And that's been the, that's been the principle for, for, uh, for Democrats from the start. Uh, any increase, and you know, understandably so, because uh, you know, many Republicans are much, uh, much more in favor of defense spending than not. So Democrats, their, their negotiating position has been, we want to see dollar-for-dollar uh, dollar increases uh, for both defense and non-defense. Um, it gets a little tricky because the original spending caps, the original sequestration that the spending caps put in place was actually larger for defense discretionary spending than non-defense discretionary spending. So um, for the past, you know, past several years, when they've reached these deals, they haven't completely wiped away sequestration. Um, but because they, they haven't gotten back to that pre-sequestration spending level, um, you know, it's been easy for Democrats to argue for even money, you know, defense and non-defense going up by the same amount. With this deal, the deal that they, that they are talking about now, it would completely wipe away sequestration uh, in 2018. But wiping away sequestration completely, by definition, means defense has to go up by more than non-defense because the original sequestration, the original spending caps, took more money out of the defense budget than the non-defense budget in terms of total dollars. And that's because as ND, as the discretionary budget is split up, it's not a 50-50 split between right. discretionary and non-discretionary. It's more like 60-40? Is that close? The total federal, total federal budget is 60-40 discretionary versus the other piece of the budget is mandatory spending. Okay. Uh, and that's where you get your, you know, your Social Security, your Medicare, your Medicaid. Um, and so the, the original spending caps, um, they entirely brought down defense discretionary spending. On the defense side, it was totally focused on discretionary spending. 
On the non-defense side, it was most mostly discretionary spending, but they also did bring down some, uh, you know, Medicare, Medicaid spending as well. So it wasn't completely, uh, as you say, it wasn't completely split, or it wasn't wasn't completely discretionary. It was split between uh, mostly discretionary for non-defense, but also some mandatory spending. Um, but strictly discretionary spending, the defense cuts were were, were bigger. So let's talk a little bit about um, an increase in caps to the non-defense discretionary side of the budget. Um, what does that mean for science? So let's look, let's look historically. The NIH, which is the largest funder of the people for the organization that I work for, um, has been the recipient of about a $2 billion increase for the past two budgetary cycles and is on the hook for maybe another billion to $2 billion increase right. this next budget cycle. Right. That in, those increases don't happen without increases to the caps in those budgetary years. Basically, is that, yeah. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, the way to, the way to think about the, just the discretionary budget in general, and you know, the caps in particular, is that it it sets the size of the sandbox that Congress has to play with. Uh, and once Congress knows the size of the sandbox, then they can choose how to fill it with individual grains of sand. And so they'll you know put in some money for NIH, some money for the Department of Defense some money for the Department of Labor, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so when discretionary spending goes up, it means there's simply more room in the sandbox. Congress can put more grains of sand in for the things that they like. One of the things that they love uh, and historically have loved is, is biomedical research. Uh, you know, NIH is one of the most popular, probably the, the most popular science agency uh, in the Congress, one of the most popular agencies, period, uh, in the Congress. Um, and these last couple of years, um, Yes, they. One of the big reasons they've been able to provide, um, you know, two billion dollar increases for NIH uh, for a couple of years now is because uh, they were able to work out um, a you know bipartisan spending deal that raised the caps by quite a bit in 2016, uh, and then less so in 2017. But but you know for both of those years, um, Congress ultimately had a lot more funding room to work with than they uh, would have if the caps had stayed in place. And that meant they had that extra room. They could direct some some extra funding for, for NIH. So. And so what have the caps meant for, let's take NIH aside. Let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit more broadly about science, uh, NSF, NASA, DOE. Sure. What have the caps meant for science funding in those agencies? Have they been as lucky or as, um, as, as favored as the NIH has been? Or have they been struggling through this kind of the, the caps and the the spending limitations that exist. It, you know, it's all been it's all been fairly similar. Um, I mean, when discretionary spending goes up, most science agencies go up. I mean, one of the weird kind of quirks of our system, we have a, you know, it's an incredibly decentralized funding system in the Congress for science. We've got lots of different subcommittees responsible for different agencies. Uh, but in spite of that decentralization, um, since the early '80s, uh, R and D spending and science spending. Um, has tended to track the discretionary budget pretty closely. Um, so when discretionary spending goes up, most science agencies go up, maybe to varying degrees. In some, you know, in some years, some will fare better than others. Um, but these last few years, it's been pretty fairly uniform, um, especially with the big kind of basic research agencies, the discovery science agencies. So uh, NSF, NIH, NASA, uh, the Office of Science, the Department of Energy. Uh, you know, generally they've they've fared pretty well. Uh, relative to the to the discretionary budget, when when discretionary levels increase, and again, you know, in, in a given agency in a given year may fare better or worse, but in the aggregate, um, they've all they all tend to fare pretty well. And actually, for one one concrete example, I mean, so 
the position we're in now with discretionary the discretionary caps in 2018 scheduled to drop and Congress talking about a you know a potential deal to raise the caps we were in this exact same position two years ago two years ago Congress came up with a, a similar deal to what they're talking about now I think that was the Ryan Murray deal that right? was uh, yeah I believe so yeah and it was maybe the first big bipartisan budget yeah agreement well, this would have been the second one because there, there've been a couple of them okay. now. so but anyway, but so Sorry. in 2016 they come up with this with this deal they raised discretionary spending uh, by about five and a half percent or so and every science agency ended up benefiting. Um, 2016 was one of the strongest years for science funding we've had in the past decade, um, purely because they secured this big increase in the discretionary budget. And so NIH certainly benefited, but then so did NASA and the Department of Energy, Department of Defense, um, you know, even some of the less favored agencies like uh, you know the National Ocean Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, for example, uh, they fared you know fared fared uh, uh, pretty well um, also. So. Um, when the discretionary budget goes up, it really does tend to generally lift lift all boats uh, on the science front. So this budget deal would open the doors for us to continue down this path. Is that the, it, were this to go forward, um, but it doesn't have the parity. It, it's not dollar for dollar. And so that's going to be maybe the sticking point for right. Democrats on the Hill, which is uh, the argument has always been parity. And, right. and for right. instance, you know, right. I'm... I'm um, uh, a co-chair of the organization NDD United, which has been for a long time kind of at the forefront fighting against sequester, fighting to raise the caps. We have a raise the caps hat on the desk in front of us here. Um, you know, and all along our argument has been for parity. Right. Um, and so that's going to make this, that's what makes the, the deal here a little bit sticky is that it doesn't have exactly right. dollar for exactly. dollar parity. Exactly. And it's, it's sticky and it's a choice. Um, because there's other factors involved as well, not just spending levels. I mean, it's, you know, I can imagine a scenario where, you know, for example, you know, uh, you know, one of the big um, Democratic priorities is, uh, you know, making some progress on DACA, on uh, deferred, uh, uh, deferred action for childhood uh, arrivals, you know, the, the uh, uh, undocumented immigration uh, program that was started by Obama and, 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 and ended by, by Trump. Um, you know, Democrats would like to see some progress on that front. So, you know, is, is it possible? Could we see, for example, a spending deal that that breaks this parity principle but gives a Democrat something on immigration? You know, that's one possibility, one, one way they could, they could you know, secure a final agreement. Um, or, you know, maybe they, Democrats stick to their guns on the parity question. We end up with a deal that only increases defense and non-defense uh, evenly and doesn't include other, other provisions Democrats might like. Um, or, you know, maybe the whole thing falls apart. That's another possibility, too. I mean, we're, we're, we're certainly in a place, we're not in a place where, where this is guaranteed by any means. And, and how reliant, so we're looking at a little more than a week until um, the current funding for the, uh, the CR expires, right? Isn't right, that CR December expires 8th? December 8th, yeah. Okay, so does this agreement need to be done before, we can, before Congress can take action on kind of a full FY18 budget deal? Or... Are we looking at kind yes. of probably, in all likelihood, like a, an extension of the well, CR right, to buy right, more time? Yeah. I mean, so what probably is going to happen, I mean, you know, they could anything could happen uh, in the next, uh, you know, it's a week and a half for the time we're recording this, but, um, you know, they could come up with a deal in the next week and a half. What's probably the most likely scenario is they come up with a short-term continuing resolution to extend current levels for two weeks or three weeks or a month or whatever uh, beyond that December 8th deadline. Um, you know, appropriators are already talking, and it shouldn't be, you know, we're, once Congress comes up with a deal on the spending caps, then it's you know maybe a two or three more weeks for appropriators to hash out a final 
deal. They've already got a lot of the work done. They've already written a bunch of the spending bills. Um, uh, and so once that cap deal is in place, it should be pretty quick to, to actually come up with a final spending agreement that, that provides actual funding for, for science agencies. Um, but they can't do that until they come up with that spending deal, uh, with that cap deal. So yeah, so I mean, it looks like we're not getting a deal, you know, maybe another few weeks, they'll, maybe they'll extend the CR for into later into, you know, around the holidays or maybe into January. Um, and they'll keep talking about the cap situation. Hopefully we can get a deal uh, on the caps within a few weeks. And then a few weeks after that, we'll get final spending. But, you know, again, it's, it's all, it's all remains to be seen at this point. Right. And the way Congress works these days, we have absolutely no idea. Right. What, right. Uh, who knows what the thing that's going to come up this week that's going to derail sure. everything yeah. is going to yeah. be. Well, the thing this week could be tax reform. Right. Because if they, if Republicans can't get tax reform uh, through, through the Senate, through the Congress, um, you know, that if, if they can get tax reform, maybe that's the legislative victory they need. Maybe that brings folks to the table, makes them more willing to come up, uh, you know, to, 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 to negotiate, come up with a, with a deal. Um, maybe makes it uh, uh, more likely that President Trump signs off on, on whatever the final deal looks like. Uh, if tax reform fails, well, you know, that might diminish the odds for a spending deal. Um, you know, I don't know if it means a shutdown, but necessarily, but, um, but you know, the, 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 the fortunes of this, of this tax reform bill in whatever shape it ends up taking, I mean, that actually could have some indirect bearing on, on the cap deal. And because the reality is both, both parties are going to need a victory. Right. You know, exactly. and, and the Republicans in particular, there's been just so much pressure to have a legislative accomplishment. Right. And they really don't have much to show so far. There's so, going to just be the need yeah. to do something. Exactly. Um, Cards on the table, likelihood that the deal that we're talking about, kind of as it's constructed, passes. What do you think? Well, I mean, well, so I mean, Democrats have already rejected it, okay. right? Um, so the, so that yeah, the, the deal that they've, I mean, that's this is the problem that they, we, we've got this potential deal. Democrats have already rejected it, so you know, I, I don't think they'd go back on their word and say, you know, we changed our mind. So you know, it's it, something's going to have to change. Either either defense spending comes down and they achieve parity. Um, non-defense spending goes or up. Non-defense spending goes up. Parity, parity, parity be positive. Uh, which yeah, right. It would be positive. Maybe you know, maybe unlikely. But um, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know, and I'm, I I don't know if I could even lay odds because there's again, there's so many moving parts, and um, you know, it's very hard to to, to see what's going to happen and how they're going to get out of this. So. Right. Well, that's why um, that's why we do a podcast like this to let you all in <laughs> kind of what's happening. Um, in three days' time, all of this might be moot because a whole bunch of things might have happened, and that would be fine too. But uh, I want to thank you for your time, Matt. Again, sure. at Twitter, it's Matt with at Matt with two T's. Mm-hmm. Herhan, um, thank you, and we'll be back after this. Thank you. Hello, this is Comfort Dorn. I'm the editor of ASBMB Today, the member magazine of ASBMB. And uh, over the last 12 months, we've seen violent demonstrations at Confederate monuments, pro football players protesting racism, and a president who wants to close borders and stifle immigration. So if you're an underrepresented minority in the biochemistry and molecular biology community, We want to know what you think the events of the last year have done to affect diversity and inclusion in science. How has life changed in your school, in your lab, in your workplace? We're looking for short essays 
to share in ASBNB today, describing what you're seeing, hearing, and experiencing in your life. And we will share these responses in our February issue. The deadline for submissions is December 15th. Please email them to asbmbtoday at asbmb.org. And you can check our Facebook page for details. Welcome back. This is Pipettes and Politics. You're joined by Ben Korb. Andre Porter. Daniel Pham. I want to thank Matt for his time talking about budget caps and the impact on science funding. And we wanted to close out today's, uh, today's episode talking about a really critically important issue to science and to the publication of science and to rigor and reproducibility. And that issue is, of course, emojis. Uh, yes, um, the National Institutes of Health um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, specifically the NINDS, the Neurological Disorders and Stroke Institute, released a request for information. The notice number, for those of you who are interested, is NOT-NS-18-014. Uh, the purpose for that RFI is to solicit feedback from the scientific community on the potential utility of creating freely available simple symbols, emojis, uh, to represent various aspects of experimental rigor or, or design for use in oral and poster presentations. So it sounds to me that the NINDS is looking for feedback from the community on if the NIH should develop emojis for usage at political at science conferences um, uh, about your about your research. Daniel, recovering scientist. <laughs> That's me. Dr. Daniel Pham, what are your what are your thoughts on this? I think you know as as a scientist there are potential benefits from creating icons Maybe you shouldn't call them emojis, or maybe the NDS shouldn't label them as emojis because that really kind of denotes like happy faces and sad faces. But I think icons that could represent um, different uh, data um, rigors and um, things like that could be really beneficial. For example, um, in a poster talk or in a oral presentation at a seminar, uh, scientists could post little symbols that would represent that the experiment that they're showing is randomized by um, having a little dice icon on the bottom or that these ex these uh, experiments were done while blinded while showing a little face with a blindfold. So it has a potential to um, showcase more information than the actual talk itself or the actual poster. However, the, you know, a few problems I could see coming with this is the biggest one would be implementation is to make sure the whole scientific community understands what these symbols mean because otherwise people will mostly be confused if they just see a dice or a blindfolded guy in, in the bottom of a yes, I would be confused you would be confused I yeah but confused. you know I, I, there's def definitely benefit um, if this becomes a w widely used standardized practice because they could, I can imagine them coming up with four to eight different symbols um, that could potentially tell more information than was actually given. Andre. So I think I was indicative of a lot of people in the community where when I saw it, I was taken aback, of course, um, because I'm kind of a contrarian when it comes to stuff like that. But I do see the merit in it. So take, for instance, uh, menus when you're at the at a restaurant 
Now there is a V for vegetarian. There are symbols for gluten-free. There are symbols for whatever else is going on with your food. But it helps it helps them describe your food without putting this long descriptive. So I, that point to me, I think, is has merit. To Daniel's point about four to eight, I think the, the um, NINDS requested other examples. The problem there, in my opinion, is that you go from explaining and educating the community on a couple emojis or symbols to a whole new lexicon of symbols that you have. Not only do you have to have to um, educate the researchers, but you have to educate the community. You have to educate different communities because an emoji to somebody yeah. may mean something totally different if you come from a different culture. So there's a lot of issues or hurdles that I, th I think NINDS or NIH or even any researcher that's trying to implement some kind of symbol symbols for their research or to convey research that they'll have to jump over and I think it's a great idea when I when I when I thought about the menu I was like ah, I get it if you want to talk about a double-blinded study and use a blindfolded emoji or something to that effect that's simple you don't have to write double-blinded you can leave more room for information but if you if you're getting into the nitty-gritty of your study and you're trying to convey that with an emoji or with a symbol, I think you'll lose the meaning of your research. So, I, yeah. so I wonder, the question that I would have is, uh, I'm looking at, I've never given a poster presentation. I guess for part of me wants to say, wouldn't you just put the words double-blinded like on your slide or, or on your, uh, I guess, you know, I've seen plenty of posters, and so the posters are... It, they're so dense with right, information exactly. anyway. Like I, I understand maybe the, the need to want to do that. The concern that I have is the optics of it. Um, what happens when um, congressional leaders look and say, why is the NIH spending taxpayer dollars developing an emoji? That, that's a concern that I have, and I wonder, um, is, is the NIH the right place to develop these sorts of things, or is this something that should maybe be created kind of organically from the community, you know, from publishers like like ASBMB or other scientific societies that publish journals and are really kind of the voices of the community. Could the emojis be developed there and kind of organically from the community? So I would push back on that a little bit. So I agree that the optics look odd, to say the least. Um, I think, to Daniel's point, emoji is the wrong term to use. Symbol, something else would, would be... Icon would be better. But I think when you get when you get to different organizations or different scientific disciplines, creating them and, and birthing them, so to speak, you kind of um, silo where that symbol is coming from. And if you have a, an agency like the NIH or the NSF, which has a broader reach for different disciplines, then you have, in my opinion, you have a, a it's almost as if you're preaching from the pulpit as opposed to having the congregation preach up to you because mm -hmm. you're going to get different responses different ideas but if the pulpit says these are the these are the symbols yeah and now the community can adapt those symbols from one central organization and the nih of course has the clout to say these are the symbols we're, we're using moving forward yeah no that's that's a good point daniel i also closing thoughts in the rfi it does request for if you have any ideas of visual designs of suggested icons you could submit it to them too and that could be a way for us as ASBMB if we have any ideas or if you listeners have any ideas to submit to them and then the NIH could then um, aggregate and decide which ones are the best so I think that is 
kind of what they're doing. Like a compromise between two books. Yeah. So you're getting yeah. it from the community as well as the, the organization is is disseminating it and standardizing right. it. Yeah. Right. So I don't I don't we'll right. we'll so, see how this goes. So Daniel, you're a thumbs up. I'm a thumbs middle. No, no, no there's a thumb. I'm, I'm looking thumb. at my phone. Okay. The emojis. You're a thumbs <laughs> yeah. up emoji. Yeah. I'm a thumbs up emoji. Andre, can I be a prayer hands emoji? He's got prayer. <laughs> um, I'm going to be the monkey who's got his hands <laughs> emoji for this one. Um, that's all the time that we have this week. I want to thank you all for listening. Um, distribute this podcast amongst your communities. Um, tweet us at bwcorb at amporter underscore. At DFAM20. Of course, at ASBMB is also kind of our mothership here. Um, use the hashtag Pipettes in Politics. Um, we will be doing this again in just a couple of weeks before the holidays. We'll have a special holiday edition. No idea what that means, but we're going to develop that over the next couple of weeks. I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your attention. Uh, I loved seeing this being distributed. Uh, the last one that we did, I look forward to seeing this one out there. Hearing your feedback. If you have ideas of what we should be saying, be sure to let us know. That's it from our headquarters here in Rockville, Maryland. (laughs) Have a great week, and we will be in touch with you soon. Bye now.